And we're back. Welcome to Lassa Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Kathy Buckman. And this is the podcast where we talk about Ted Lasso, leadership, adult development, growth, a wide range of topics, all based upon our close reading of the Ted Lasso series. So we've had a little break. It is good to be back. Yeah, we are very excited now to be beginning our review of the episodes of season two. Some of you have asked if we watch the entire season before we start, and the answer to that is no. So we have only seen the first four episodes of Ted Lasso season two at this point. So we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I think we have some intimations of what might be happening here. Some suggestions that there's some stuff going on beneath the surface for some of the characters, including maybe Ted. We'd like it to unfold and we'd like our commentary to be almost naive and stuck in sort of an eternal present. No, we don't know where season two is going right now. We just know that it's starting. That's us, naive, not to say ignorant. All right. So season two, episode one is Goodbye, Earl. And this refers to the death of a dog. I just want to stay right here. I, at first, yeah, I... Wondered about this particular subject matter for a comedy show, but I think I understand it because I think the show hints at, as I said, some of these deeper issues. The show is about divorce and death. We heard about the death of Ted's father. I think we even in the first four episodes, we're going to hear more about Ted's father. And so, you know, I think maybe it is fitting. You mean starting out the entire season of a comedy series with a dead animal? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, with the bloody demise of an animal like that, uh, a very violent death is something that's a little bit tough, I think, in some ways. I think it is an interesting choice, but it definitely sets up what comes in the rest of the episode pretty well. We will talk about exactly why that is. All right, so season two, episode one, Goodbye Earl, opens on a very close shot of Nate's face and then pulls back to reveal him with Ted and Coach Beard. And just off the bat, nothing in this show is, as we've talked about before, nothing is random. This close-up on Nate's face, it makes me wonder already. And obviously, Nate's role, as we will see, changes in the course even of this episode where we're getting to see maybe a different Nate than we experienced before. Yeah, I get the feeling that Nate is on a journey and the close-up of his face makes us think about where is he going next? We're in mid-game and Richmond has a penalty kick, an opportunity to break their streak of seven straight ties to start the season. Danny puts the ball down at the penalty line, lines up, runs, takes a shot, but as the ball curves towards the upper 90, Richmond's mascot, Earl Greyhound, escapes his handler, and is sadly struck by the ball. And we know that Danny has quite a leg on him. And the dog does not survive the encounter. Afterwards, we're in the press room for the post-game conference. Once again, press room, post-game conference, very common theme. Virtually every episode of the first season had one of these or some simulation of it. Trent Krim, of course, asks about the dog. Ted then tells the story of a dog that attacked him as a child that he then later adopted when the dog's owner became incapacitated. He had once cried at the sight of the dog. Now he loves his attacker. Eventually, he loses even that dog. He says it's funny that the things that made you cry, knowing that they existed, now make you cry, knowing that they're gone. When those things come into our lives, they help us get from one place to a better place. 
I think he's talking more than just about the dog here. What do you think, Kathy? Ted rarely, when he winds himself up for these speeches, is talking about only one thing. I think he's a speechmaker by nature, and he is trying to put into context the tragedy that people have just witnessed, but make the important point that whatever tragedy somebody may experience, there's another side to it. There's a place that it takes you to. Sometimes it's wisdom. Sometimes it's just a new perspective. You know, he has just left his marriage. So it's hard not to hear this as something of a commentary on that and moving from one place to another through a period of sadness. Also, we know that he lost his father at a young age, something he talked about during the darts game with Rupert. It's not hard to read. This is potentially talking about that death as well, since it's a death in his childhood. So it's a broader statement about loss, about the stages of grief, where we go when we experience these things. We now cut to Danny in the shower, fully dressed, water streaming off him as he's muttering. He's washing the death off himself, he tells Ted, who, despite multiple attempts, fails to engage him with his trademark humor. Yeah, I don't think Danny's ready to see the humor in this situation. No, and Ted doesn't know what to do. He literally shakes his head and says, I got nothing. He has nothing. He's finally run up into a situation where his coaching philosophy and style is not able to really cross the gap between him and where Danny is now. Indeed. Back in the clubhouse, as Ted discusses the string of ties they're suffering, which Ted blames superstitiously on his own wish at the end of the first season for a tie, we get a couple of quick callbacks to motifs of the first season, which I think are worth mentioning because callbacks are a big part of the show. Ted invokes the karma police. That's what you get when you mess with them, he says. This is the first 90s music reference here and maybe the premier 90s, late 90s indie band Radiohead is being alluded to here. We also get our first instance of transatlantic misnaming. Ted notes the British use the term unlucky as an all-purpose way of passing blame. And this is something that actually I've experienced because one of our kids was on a soccer team with another player whose father was British. And his father used this term 100, 200 times during every game they played as a sort of a term for truly things that seem kind of unlucky, but also, you know, things where maybe a player messed up a little bit. It's just unlucky. It's just unlucky. It's a really nice way of not laying blame on anyone. I'm not aware of this usage. So I think what you're trying to say is that there's an expression in British English, if something unfortunate happens, you can call it unlucky. Even if everybody knows somebody messed up as a way of softening the blow of feeling like any one particular person failed. Yes. And it's part, especially of British soccer. Ah, okay. British, so you British liked football. it when this dad. Was... We all liked it. Actually, we all said that is really nice. And I heard other people started to use it. So we began to spread. I think it's sort of a, a little mini cognitive reframing. Ah, yeah. Explain what cognitive reframing is, Kathy, and how you see it that way. Well, last season, we talked a lot about how one of the ways that Ted coaches is to encourage people to take what feels like a setback and look at it from a different angle and therefore change its meaning and therefore change how heavy or difficult it feels for them. And I think that's exactly what this unlucky terminology does for people. And I think they sneak in one more thing. In the scene immediately hereafter, 
Higgins says that he's going home to watch The Empire Strikes Back with his boys, and he has to get himself ready to discuss when Luke and Leia make out. And I just wondered if this is a sneaky reference to Ted's ill-advised reference in the previous episode with this sort of American folksy, but untranslatable and transferable to the British context reference to kissing your own sister. I don't know, maybe not, but I just dawned on me that it might've been. In the follow-up to this reference, we get something that really hit home for me. So as Higgins is leaving, Ted says, may the force be with you, which is a Star Wars reference. And Higgins replies, and also with you, and Ted crosses himself. Now, I'm thinking a lot of people probably don't get what's going on here, but this is a little joke that we used to make all the time back in my Catholic upbringing. It's a play on a ritual near the end of the Catholic mass and at the end of different kinds of masses, I'm told. But what makes it specifically Catholic to me is that Ted crosses himself. At the end of the Catholic mass, we would say, peace be with you and also with you is what we would say. And it's a little nice communal gesture towards the end of the mass. It was also the point at which we knew oh, it's almost over. <laughs> Not only did we get to greet our neighbors, but we also knew we were going to be on our way home soon to watch cartoons. Keely, Rebecca, and Ted have a little girl talk, as they call it, about Rebecca's new beau. And Keely agrees to go on a double date with Rebecca and her new boyfriend, John. We now see Roy Kent retired from football after the career-ending injury at the end of season one coaching his niece's soccer team. His style, well, it's what you'd expect. It's really the anti-Ted. He is facing down a group of eight-year-old girls and telling them how terribly they played in a stern voice with his characteristic stern expression. This is played for laughs. Obviously, the eight-year-olds are not the slightest bit upset by what he's saying to them. But it just shines a light on the idea of a coaching style. Not all coaches coach the same way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get worse or better results. That the style kind of comes from who you are. Keely encourages him to consider commentating as a new career, which he rejects with Roy Kent-like emphasis. Let's put it that way. On the pitch, Danny continues to struggle in what Nate calls a Shakespearean tragedy. So here we get our first outright reference to Shakespeare. Remember that Rupert appropriated Shakespeare's Mark Antony in the last season during the darts game. Shortly hereafter, when they discuss Danny's case, the yips, Ted says it's like saying Macbeth in a theater. You're supposed to say Scottish play, by the way. And to me, it almost felt like they were making up for the lack of Shakespearean references in the first season. We get two in the first episode of the second season. And yes, that made you very, very happy. It did. It made me happy. To deal with the issue, Higgins suggests that they bring in a sports psychologist. Despite his general apprehension and a modest Midwest skepticism, Ted agrees. Now we're at dinner with Keely, Roy, Rebecca, and John. We see John opening with a story about being tempted to assault beloved comedian Martin Short, <laughs> like one of the last persons I can imagine anyone wanting to assault. He also says he bounces around in his allegiance between United and Man City, which for our American listeners is sort of like saying that you switch on a whim between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's just not something you do. Yeah, I think this is supposed to characterize John as somebody 
who Roy in particular is not going to feel super fond for. Yes. And Keeley says he's not shy <laughs> in describing his qualities. Roy tells Rebecca that John is fine, but that she deserves someone who makes her feel like she's been struck by lightning. Don't dare settle for fine, he tells her. And of course, here we get to see both Roy's wisdom as well as his ability to state the truth in clear, even strident terms. This is a sign that, in fact, he would make a great soccer pundit. Back in the clubhouse, we meet Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, the sports psychologist Higgins brings in to help Danny. Uh, let's say she's not overly impressed with Ted and his coaching staff's quirky ways. Well, she has a very stony expression. It's sort of hard to know exactly what she's thinking, but she's certainly not charmed by Ted. Rebecca and John meet for coffee and to the strains of another 90s indie music icon, Amy Mann's Wise Up, she realizes that Roy was right. And this isn't just a 90s song. This is on the soundtrack to both Jerry Maguire and Magnolia, two 90s cultural icons, both featuring the prototypical 90s actor, Tom Cruise. She breaks up with John, saying that she needs to be brave enough to let someone wonderful love her. Back on the pitch, Danny returns, once again himself, singing his own name. Danny credits the incredible Dr. Sharon. She helped him realize that football is life, but it is also death too, and that football is football. And I think this is a sort of balanced characterization that seems at odds with Ted's generally positive point of view. He's happy with football as life, but the notion that it's death too probably isn't something he would embrace. This is cognitive reframing, but it's not really Ted's flavor of cognitive reframing, which, yeah, I agree with you, is generally about emphasizing the positive over any other way that you could look at something. We discussed that last season as being part of the polarity that he falls very heavily on one side, and maybe that has its strengths in some situations and its weaknesses in others. When Ted goes to thank Dr. Sharon, he finds Colin emerging from her office and Zoro just about to enter it. And just as she spoke Spanish with Danny, she immediately falls into French with Zoro. So she is literally uh, multilingual in her approach. And also, while she's very stony-faced with Ted and his coaching staff, she seems much more expressive with the players. Yeah, all of this seems to trigger Ted a bit. We'll talk about this a bit more, but it's a destabilizing thing for him to have somebody working directly with his players who clearly has skills and expertise and linguistic abilities that he does not. We watch Lust Conquers All, one of these prototypical British reality shows, along with Roy and his yoga mums. And it turns out that Jamie is one of the contestants. The yoga mums love Jamie a little bit to uh, Roy's distaste. So Jamie Tart is back. We are not rid of Jamie Tart. No, thankfully. All right, great. Kathy, I know you've got a lot to talk about this new season. Yes, this episode for me, first of all, it's just full of stuff to talk about, but I think I have narrowed it down to four topics that I think really jump out in this episode. Cross-cultural communication, Nate stepping up as a new manager, coaching versus therapy, and then Rebecca and the willingness to be vulnerable. 
So let's oh, take those in order. I hear that last one. You're saving the best for last there, aren't you? Oh, you know I am. So let's talk about cross-cultural communication in this episode. We have a new character, Jan Moss. He is from the Netherlands, and he has a communication style that almost immediately stands out as being different from the other players. So the example here is somebody repeats Ted's signature line about be a goldfish, meaning don't dwell on your mistakes. When the meaning of the saying is explained to Jan, he's sort of confused. And he says, I didn't make any mistakes. You did. The players are taken aback by this because it feels really both like bragging and also calling somebody else out for their incompetence. And Sam says, as a way of explaining this behavior, he's just being Dutch. Yeah, the Dutch are known for being very blunt in their uh, explanations. One of the bluntest groups, much more blunt than the British, who are known for sugarcoating or being obscure in, in their critique. And this comes up in the book we've spoken about before, No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. And we talked a lot about feedback culture. This is a book by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix and Aaron Meyer, business professor. They know that Americans like us tend to think that, oh, we're the straightest shooters. But in fact, there's a quote from the Dutch director of public policy in the book explains, Netflix culture has succeeded in creating an environment where feedback is frequent and actionable. Yet when an American gives feedback, even at Netflix, they almost always start by telling you what's good about your work before telling you what they really want to say. Americans learn things like always give three positives with every negative and catch employees doing things right. This is confusing for a Dutch person who will give you positive feedback or negative feedback, but is unlikely to do both in the same conversation. And I think that confusion is what we see in Jan Moss, right? It's not that he's like, you people are doing it wrong. He just doesn't even understand what's going on. Yeah, I think he's just operating with the communication style that he's accustomed to and is confused that anybody would find it to be inappropriate or not the most efficient way. It's probably not an accident that they bring in this Dutch player because, as we said before, several members of the creative team that created Ted Lasso, including Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt, who plays Coach Beard, met when they were working at Boom Chicago, which is little confusingly, a improv club in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. So they, I'm sure, got a lot of straight Dutch talk. Yes. And, and I think this is really important to talk about because in a workplace, you're going to have people with different communication styles. There are going to be people who are going to be super direct, and there are going to be people who are rather indirect in how they give feedback to each other, how they talk about things that went right, how they talk about things that went wrong. And one thing that I think it's important to understand as people navigate these natural differences in people's communication styles is that intent really matters. So think about the difference between Jan in this case and Jamie. When Jamie used to say things like this, so if Jamie talks about you know his brilliance and what a great footballer he is and starts pointing out other people's mistakes, his intention was to build himself up and to shame other people. 
That is entirely different from Jan's intention in this case. He is just trying to be accurate. He's honestly confused. He doesn't know what mistakes somebody could be referring to because he didn't make any. That's a really good point because the phrase, I didn't make any mistakes, you did. That's almost something Jamie could say with a different tone and as you note, a different intention. Completely. And so given that interpreting and reacting to tone can be such a challenge in the workplace, I think we can all benefit from taking a moment and just reflecting, first of all, on the range of styles within the people of our team. And and then second, using that as a way to calibrate how we hear and react to the things that they say. We may reflexively react to somebody's tone and words, but that may not be their intention at all. And as you noted, especially in cross-cultural situations, there can be confusions around this. Confusions between even people you would think might be closely alike, like the French and the British and the Dutch all have different communication styles, generally. I was once coaching uh, a promising rising star in the world of finance and investing who was French. He had lived most of his life in France, but then he had gone to England and worked there for several years. Now he was in the United States and had been working in the States for a few years. And he said to me, I always knew what people meant when they would talk in France, because people in France, they say exactly what they mean. And then when I moved to England, it was also easy because I learned that in England, nobody ever says exactly what they mean. But the United States is the most complicated and confusing place I have ever worked because sometimes people say what they mean and sometimes they don't. And I can't figure out the rules. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be from France to struggle with that. Okay, so that's cross-cultural communication. You also mentioned that Nate's promotion caught your eye. One thing that really jumped out to me from this episode is the spotlighting of Nate and how different Nate is showing up in season two. Specifically, something has changed very significantly for Nate. He now has a more junior teammate named Will, who is doing Nate's old job. And now Nate is in the position of managing Will. He's a first-time manager. This is a very consequential milestone for most people in their professional career. Most people are promoted to manager because of the performance that they've shown in their previous role. But once you're a manager, there's this new thing that everybody's hoping you're going to do, which is to start helping other people do their best work and supporting the performance of others. I'm going to say that Nate, from what we've seen in this episode, may be off to a bit of a rocky start. As a manager, we see him use mocking sarcasm when Will asks to leave early for his mom's birthday. I think what Nate says exactly is something like, oh, and what position does your mom play on the team again? And this kind of approach does not jibe very well with Ted's style. In fact, Ted overrules Nate and gives Will the afternoon off that he's asked for. And this can't feel good to anybody, right? You know, you're a new manager, you're answering a question from your direct report, and your manager overrules you immediately right in front of you. And Ted calls Nate on how strong, direct, and sarcastic his 
interactions with Will seem to be. And Nate has an explanation. He says that his managerial philosophy is you've got to stay on them. Pressure makes pearls. We actually had a hint of this, I think, when you note mocking sarcasm seems to be part of his repertoire. When he first got a chance to speak to the team in sort of a managerial situation, it was in his famous insult comic mode, mm-hmm. where that's all he had was mocking sarcasm. So we have seen that even though Nate in one sense seems to be kind of a retiring, shy, deferential person, if you give him a little bit of power, a very different Nate comes out. I think that's right. And I think that explains the contrast, you know, as an individual contributor or as Ted's subordinate, he has this very over eager to please tell me what to do meekness to him. But the difference is really power. You give him power and he turns into somebody else. I think the bottom line here is that different styles work for different people in different organizations. Different styles are possible. Ted's style isn't the only style and Nate's style isn't the only style, but the two of them have to collaborate. And Nate also needs to get the best out of Will in the context of the organization where Ted is the leader. Yeah, it's very interesting that Ted could look at Nate and say, here's somebody I can develop. Here's somebody I can find more facets to. Whereas Nate looks at Will and only can see the faults. So that's Nate. And I think you also wanted to talk about coaching versus therapy, the ways in which we can see here that there's some things that Ted just cannot broach. With the introduction of Dr. Sharon, we have the beginning of what looks like it's going to be an interesting arc of episodes where we get the opportunity to take a look at coaching as a way to help people improve their performance and contrast that with therapy as a way to help people improve their performance. So this is obviously all in the context of Danny Rojas. He's had a setback. He's a top performer, but he feels like he's really messed up and he's being very hard on himself. He started to operate within a new cognitive framing. Football used to be life, but now football is death. And the result of this is actually something physically he can no longer do. He's now no longer able to kick with accuracy around the goal. And when we see this happen, Ted goes for his go-to, you know, he pulls Danny aside and gives him a motivational speech, but it doesn't work. And Ted admits he's stumped and he has to ask his usual trio for help. Coach Beard, Nate and Higgins convene. Higgins suggests that they bring in a sports psychologist, Ted, as he says, expresses skepticism. And even as he says, yes, let's go ahead and do it. He's shaking his head no. And one of the funniest visual cues we see in this episode. So the question is, why wouldn't Ted want this kind of help? Why wouldn't Ted want an expert to come in and help Danny do what Danny very clearly needs to be able to do? This sort of puts me in mind of something that leaders often face. They often face moments when they actually may need to supplement what they can do with skills and expertise that others have. And Ted is really uncomfortable with this. It's not entirely unreasonable that leaders are uncomfortable bringing other people in to operate in their territory. What I think is really interesting is that Ted actually leans into his discomfort and tries to figure out why wouldn't I want a sports psychologist to help my star player? So later in the pub, there's a kind of interesting conversation between Coach Beard and Ted. Ted is really trying to dig in 
to understand why he doesn't like the idea of the sports psychologist. And he believes that it actually relates to his experience having gone through couples therapy with his ex-wife, where he felt like the goal of those sessions wasn't necessarily to listen to him, but just to set him up to listen to all his failings. And I guess he's extrapolating from that, really, that the process with the sports psychologist may be similar. It's going to be focused more on figuring out what's wrong with Ted then it's going to be focused on helping Danny. And for me, the thing that this connects for a little bit was when I was working in management consulting. So the way that management consulting works is there's a client organization that hires the consultants on a temporary basis to come in and just look at how they operate and see if there are ways to make the client organization work better. And the leaders and managers within that client organization are not always welcoming of this help. Because if the consultants can find something that can be improved, by implication, that means the way that the people are currently doing it is wrong. And it's really hard for those leaders and managers to see the consultants as being there to help them. They feel understandably threatened that the whole point of the exercise is to point out what they're doing wrong. Where I go with all this is accepting help. If you're a leader, Occasionally, you're going to need to accept help. And it's also the case that accepting help from others makes you vulnerable. It puts you in a position where others can look at what you're doing and offer a critique of it. Ted, at this moment in the pub with Coach Beard, is acknowledging that he has made himself vulnerable by agreeing to get this help for Danny and for his team. If you feel a resistance to something that logically seems to make sense, there's probably a sense of vulnerability that you're feeling, which I think is interesting because that's the same thing that therapy seems to require also, is that people go to a vulnerable place and talk about the things that are most private and personal to them. And I think that ultimately might be the line, right? You don't need to be super vulnerable with your coach all the time, but in therapy, you probably do. So speaking of vulnerability, Ted isn't the only one in this episode that we see making himself vulnerable. The plot line where Rebecca is dating and trying to find her way through the process of looking for a new relationship leads her to her own observation over a beverage in an establishment. She's having a coffee with her new boyfriend and she sort of goes into this reverie and she starts to reflect on how strange it is to date someone, how strange it is to spend time with somebody who feels like almost a stranger to you. And she says that her friend Flo once said to her that intimacy is all about leaving yourself open to attack. And from this insight, she goes immediately to what it's really going to take for her to be happy in her next relationship, which is, as she puts it, I need to be brave enough to let someone love me without fear of being hurt. There's a cost essentially to going through life, trying to be safe, because if you prevent anything from ever hurting you you really prevent yourself from truly loving. This topic right here, it sounds like it's very focused on relationships and obviously it is, but it is a topic that comes up in business more than you would think, thanks to one woman, Brene Brown. So we got all the way through season one without talking about Brene Brown, but here we are finally. Yes, and I'm very excited. I am a Brene Brown fan. 
So in case you don't know the work of Brene Brown, she's a researcher and lecturer, and the topics that she explores are courage, vulnerability, shame, empathy, and leadership. And she explores combinations of these topics in her best-selling books. She's also quite famous for a particular TED Talk. If you're interested in a good introduction to Brene Brown, probably the TED Talks are the place to start. We can put that in the show notes. One of her propositions is that if you make yourself invulnerable to pain, you're also cutting yourself off from feeling joy. This seems to be the proposition that Rebecca's speech is echoing. Now, why do leaders care about this? Why is this something that leaders find important? It's a good question. I have actually spoken to many people in the business context who have mentioned to me that they read Brene Brown, that they're Brene Brown fans, and that the insights that she draws in her work have influenced them. Let's start with one book in particular. Her 2018 book, Dare to Lead, Brave Work, Tough Conversations, Whole Hearts. This is really where she draws that connection between vulnerability and leadership. And she says that to be a great leader, you need to be vulnerable, you need to define your values, you need to establish trust, and you need to show resilience. And it's that first formulation that leaders need to be vulnerable. I think that's really what's coming up in this episode. In many ways, I think it's the central theme. It's what connects the Ted storyline and the Rebecca storyline is that they are starting on a journey to be more vulnerable. Yeah, you've noted this a little bit with Ted, right? Is that he was vulnerable in some ways in his marriage and it's led him to pain and becoming more vulnerable in his workplace is something that he's going to have to embrace. Yeah, I, I think he recognizes that. It doesn't make it any more pleasant. It's still a scary thing to do, but he recognizes it's, it's something he has to do to support his team. And the other thread here probably is the other major plot point in this episode is Keeley trying to get Roy to at least consider becoming a commentator. You know, what is Roy's problem with being a commentator? Does he think it's useless? No, it seems like he really likes to offer his advice, as we saw when he spoke to Rebecca and and his coaching. So what is it about the commentating that is frightening to him? And what's interesting is at the end, we see a counterexample, right, which is that Jamie's out there actually playing this role on a TV show where he's very vulnerable. He can be kicked off the show at any point. And so once again, his nemesis, his foil, Jamie, has embraced a form of vulnerability in a very Jamie way, right? He thinks in some ways he's invulnerable, that in fact, of course, he's going to be the sexiest guy on the island or, or wherever they are. But it's going to be hard for Roy to embrace this thing that he clearly could be good at, we expect, because there's some refusal to open up to vulnerability there. Absolutely. I, I think that is really central to the Roy plotline here. Brene Brown often quotes, I think it's Teddy Roosevelt, about the man in the arena. It's really easy to critique the guy who's out there battling on the floor of the Coliseum or whatever, but you're doing it from the cheap seats. If you're really going to do something important in this world, you have to be the man in the arena. You have to be the man who might fall down and fail and that everybody will critique. I, I guess that's the position that Roy is really reluctant to take at this point. Seems like it. This is certainly not the last time I will be talking about Brene Brown. So if you're a fan, rest assured, we will come back to this topic. Looking forward to it. So that's season two, episode one, Goodbye Earl. Coming up, season two, episode two of Ted Lasso, Lavender. Lavender.